not as moved as I was the week before, the week before, the week before. There seems to be no end to remembering that there are so many people having trouble all the time that uh, that uh, that the first noble truth about life being suffering doesn't mean that there isn't beauty and wonder and mystery and uh, everything extraordinary about the experience of life and that it is difficult in so many manifold ways every week we, I hear something, I say, oh yeah, that too people have, and that also people have, and that also people have. And in my mind, I, I always think if we, if we announce somehow every morning in our personal radio stations that's played in our personal homes, the names of the personal people that we know and heard about and our friends, uh, we hear lots of stuff about people far away who are in trouble, and I hope we're moved by it. I think we're moved by it. But when we hear the person next door down the street and the person across here and my mother and my father and my next-door neighbor and my child and this one, we really remember this is a really extraordinary enterprise, this fragile enterprise of staying in a life for however long we do. And it causes me mentally... I, I don't know how to say this, the mental equivalent of lowering your voice, that whatever I was about or to whom I was feeling about, it goes away because it doesn't count compared to what's going on in the world. It's, it's too banal an example, but I think of it as re-screwing my head on straight with what's important. You know, that you, know, you get to think about how could he have said this, how could he have done this, how could they or she or da da and you realize none of that. That's all you know. That's that's the op-ed page this morning. I don't want the op-ed page. I want the news. What's really true and what's really true is it's tremendously hard to get through at this life and to have people who care about you and look after you and are interested in you and to have one's own life dedicated to be in a shape to do that. May I be available to my friends and my relatives and everybody else that I run into? Um, I think all religious traditions say that. I was just trying to look for the Buddhist equivalent, and what came out is, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace, which is not Buddhist. But, uh, but, the, the, but the Bodhisattva vow is its own way of saying, I really want to be endlessly available to take care of people. Um, I think another way of re-saying what I said in the beginning about what we are practicing and practicing paying attention to something as ordinary and mundane as the breath coming in and out and just sitting here is not to become breath experts, but to have clear minds so that we won't lose sight of the fact that there's a great deal, that there, not even there's a great deal of suffering in the, in the world. The world is shot through with suffering that incarnate experience is full of it. And to the degree that I feel it, I'm a kind of person. And I think human beings are. I think that, that that's, that's, that's the human response to knowing, wow, as we feel kind. That's what I think we're actually doing here. So 
This is my friend Jeff Bell. <laughs> Everybody had metal fingers crossed. When <laughs> we assumed you something happened to you on the way here. You would think that the guy with OCD would be here on time, right? <laughs> <laughs> I Long did think story. that, actually. <laughs> Check and recheck the directions. <laughs> really glad to be with you today. Thanks for having me. So I thought uh, uh, what we would do is I'll, I'll leave us five minutes at the end for any kinds of things that we're going to do because now it's, it's too important to go right on. I thought that the way we would position this, since Jeff and I have not uh, worked out exactly who'll say what when, is that I would like to say why I invited you to talk here, which would position what the wonderful work I think you've done, how it fits in the middle of a Dharma class. And then I'd like to say, Jeff, what did you do and how did you do it and why? And is that okay with you? Sounds good. So five-minute uh, introduction. Jeff Bell is a journalist, by the way, and uh, the uh, how many people listen to radio station KCBS here? <laughs> well, if you do this afternoon between... Two and seven. Two and seven, you'll hear his lovely voice telling you what's happening. So this is why I think Jeff is here. Uh, remember when we began to sit this morning and I talked about the goal of mindfulness, being able to be really awake, uh, knowing what's going on in a clear way. What obstructs our ability to see in a clear way are the habits of the mind that keep it preoccupied. It's as if, um, it's, it's uh, one of the, well, let me start that sentence again. One of my favorite metaphors, and I've just gotten back from New York, is if you imagine yourself on 42nd Street and Times Square, and uh, you want to walk north to uh, 89th Street or 100th Street or something, and you're looking down Broadway and you say, okay, I'm going there, so I see it. I just, you go straight up Broadway, there you go. And then you start to go, but right away you duck into a movie theater over here. By accident you step into a movie theater that's playing a retro of your life or something. And then afterwards, whoa, I forgot to go. You go out, you continue on. But there's another movie theater here that ducks into, and that's showing uh, some sort of scary movie of the future, and you get captivated by it. And you forget to go where you're going, and you forget to keep your eye on the ball, and you forget to know, and you can get lost and spend a whole life going in and out of movie theaters. <laughs> and in between, you get so tired from the movies, you fall asleep. So even when you're walking, you don't see what's in the street. It's not a way to walk with alacrity down Broadway where the whole world is and where you could see a million ways to connect in kindness. If we could walk down Broadway with an unfettered mind, we'd see this person to say hello to, this person to help out, this person to help across the street, this person to exclaim about their triplets. There would be an amazing number of ways to live in a way that made one's own mind and the world around us better going down Broadway. But we get captivated. What captivates us is our, uh, um, uh, it's not so much a habit of paying attention, it's the condition of being attentive, inattentive, because we have habits that keep our attention held hostage. Different people have different habits that, that keep their attention held hostage. 
in the list of habits that the Buddha put out, he put the habit of um, the habit of getting angry very easily is one of the habits. So it's some people have for whatever reason a, a short fuse, something happens, and they just get mad, and the and the fires that burn block their vision for a while, and they tell more stories and more stories and more stories, and they don't necessarily think of themselves as a person with a habit of a short fuse. They think that's the way it is. Then there are people who have the habit of needing things. They're just always uh, lusting after something. I need, uh, I need a new house, a new car, a new partner, a new taste thrill, a new something because it'll make me feel better. And then their whole world is populated by only those things. Where can I find something that'll make me feel good? There are people whose mind habit is just hanging out, being a little bit lazy, and it falls asleep easily. So uh, in, 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 uh, in earlier arcane religious times, that was called the sin of sloth. But you know, nobody who has the sin of sloth likes it because it's not a very engaged or exciting life. You, know, you want to be in the life. And some people have uh, the mind habit of uh, uh, doubting themselves, um, uh, not being able to really put themselves out in the life and be there. Those are four habits. The fifth habit is a habit of a fretting and addictive mind. And fretting, people have fretting addictive minds. They're, they spend a lot of time scanning the horizon for what is wrong or could be wrong or might have been wrong or was wrong. And many people have that in small degree and sometimes in big degree. Uh, how many people here think they fret a lot? It's always, it's always a pretty big group of people. They think, what if this could happen? Other people these, the, that you say, you know, I worry a lot. You say, do you worry? They say, worry? Why would I worry? You say, well, you have this and this and this to worry about. They say, you know, I'm doing the best I can. It's out of my control. Worrying is worthless, period. And they know it, you know, and they absolutely know it. And if you say worrying is worthless to a person whose principal preoccupation is worrying, <laughs> they not only feel bad that they don't have the other person's mind, but they feel embarrassed because this other person has just said, worrying is stupid, you know that. <laughs> All right, but if you are a, a first-class black belt worrier, you don't feel good about having somebody tell you it's idiotic to worry. That doesn't do anybody any good. That being true, the people who worry are more secretive about it because it's an addiction to worrying that's embarrassing to tell people. It's somehow, I think, more embarrassing than some of the other addictions. People are, I think, more eager or more ready to go to a group of people with short fuses. I have a short fuse, I have to work on it, okay. Or um, I lust for this or that, I have to work on it. It's not so embarrassing as to say, you know, I am a chronic worrier, can you believe it? I worry about everything. It's a very, very large group of people, and it occupies a lot of mind real estate, and it takes up a lot of time. And I know it a little bit. Jeff knows it, I think, more than I know it. But we speak to each other very clearly because we understand each other. There's one more thing I want to say, and then Jeff will tell you his story. There's a very, there's, I think there's a very important point in anybody's spiritual life 
that's before any technique that you do. We're talking at this point about the technique of learning to pay attention. Before any technique or any spiritual practice whatsoever, there needs to be the awareness in the mind, I need a practice. There needs to be the awareness in the mind, things could be different. This that I have is not me. It's a habit of my mind. Make a difference between this. You know, the, you know I have a short fuse. To be able to say that is not to say that is not as helpful as to say one of the habits of my mind is to lose it. Then it's a habit of the mind. You can change a habit by working on it. Sometimes it's extremely hard. But to be able to distance yourself from whatever it is, that's not me. That's just a habit. In psychology you, you call those you call certain behaviors syntonic and egocentonic and egodystonic. Syntonic means it's all right with me that this is happening. Dystonic means I don't like it that this happens with me. It's a habit, but I don't really want to have it. I am distancing myself from that habit. Now, I've discovered that by distancing, I push it out the door, it comes in the window. Then I have to learn to do something more. I can't just say, get out of here, have it, I'll see you around. It doesn't do like that. It stays around. For whatever reasoning of wiring or chemistry, we know that more now. It's not, you know, it's not arbitrary. It has to do with wiring, it has to do with chemistry. It has to do probably maybe something with upbringing, but I'm more convinced it has to do with wiring and chemistry, and I'll let Jeff talk about that. So what needs to happen before any change to happen is for people to say, this is the situation with me. In the movie Kundun, the baby Dalai Lama says to his teachers in reciting the second of the Four Noble Truths, which is usually the cause of suffering is craving, he says, I am the cause of most of my own suffering because of the habits of my mind. That's brilliant. I don't know if Tenzin Gyatso, our current Dalai Lama, actually said that or they just put it in the movie. But for any eight-year-old to say that, for a 40-year-old to say that, is already a tremendous thing. To be able to say, I am the cause of most of the habits, uh, most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind, is already to be on the journey. Then you say, what can I do about it? But first to say, this is a habit, I need to change it, and I don't want it. Now, Jeff Bell will tell you about his story, which fits into it. And you'll know why. Hmm. Well, first let me say it is such a great pleasure to be here today. Um, this woman, as you know, is just amazing. And Sylvia's influence on, on my current outreach and my recovery is, is just phenomenal. And I'll share a little bit along the way about how um, your work has, has shaped what I'm doing these days. Um, and, and let me also say what an amazing unbelievable journey life is. Um, from my perspective, uh, I grew up Jewish. I have absolutely no roots to Buddhism, and I find myself more and more speaking in Buddhist circles and feeling so at home in this group. Um, I recently gave a talk at the first annual conference of the Buddhist Recovery Network, and the first thing I had to acknowledge when I got in front of the group was, A, I'm not in recovery, B, I'm not a Buddhist. So probably not a real logical speaker to be here, and yet I think that the message, uh, I hope, really did resonate because there are some just incredible parallels between 
uh, the challenges that I, as somebody with obsessive-compulsive disorder, face uh, going through the, uh, the empirically-based, uh, medically-proven treatment process and what you, as practicing Buddhists, uh, go through in, in your practice. And that's really the nexus that I want to share today. Um, I think one of the things that I found to be really helpful in a talk like this is to start with this question for all of you. Uh, and I want you to be honest with me. How many of you in, say, the past six months to a year have backed your car out of the driveway, driven about a half block away, and wondered to yourself one of two things. Did I close the garage door or did I unplug an appliance? <laughs> Those of you who aren't raising your hands, I don't believe you. <laughs> um, I have asked this question of audiences across the country in my outreach, and I find that almost to a person, people get that. It's human nature. We, we all have that nagging what-if question. So the second question I ask is this. How many of you, at some point, actually turned the car around went back and checked that the garage door was closed or that the appliance was unplugged. Show of hands. <laughs> Again, most people understand this. Now, I won't ask you the third question that I used to ask when I first went public and was a little new to outreach, not realizing that I was outing people all around me, <laughs> which would be how many of you, like me, went back, checked the garage door, saw that it was closed, drove off, and then wondered to yourself, was that my garage or Mary's garage that I checked? And went back and checked again. Um, that was the start of a cycle for me that could go on for four or five checks. Now, my premise in, in outreach is not that everybody has a touch of OCD. As Sylvia alluded to, uh, more and more the evidence is overwhelming. This, this, I am convinced, is a biologically based biochemical brain disorder. And, and I personally believe that there's a genetic component that we uh, come into this world wired with if we're going to have true clinical OCD. But what I found, um, and I'll share with you bits and pieces of my story, but what I found is that when I went public in 1997, I'm sorry, 2007, um, with my first book, which was a memoir of my double life about living with OCD, I found that in my travels talking about OCD that a lot of people could really relate to the core what-if questions and those counterproductive actions that people take in this effort to rid ourselves of uncertainty. Now, this is where things start moving into the Buddhist world for me, um, because Whereas in the traditional OCD circles, therapists don't often quote the Buddha, although I think more and more are starting to see the wisdom of the Buddha, um, the therapy process involved for OCD, and, and I should probably pause just long enough to, to tell you this much more about OCD for anybody who's unfamiliar with it. OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder, often called the doubting disease. At its core are these what-if questions, which are obsessions, that get stuck in our brains. And the compulsions, the C in the OCD, um, are simply these rituals, these routines that we take on trying to rid ourselves of the discomfort of uncertainty. Does that ring any bells for anybody in this room? Um, and, and so uh, it manifests itself in a variety of ways. Um, I am an OCD checker and washer with harm obsessions, to use the vernacular of my world which means that over the years, my fears have been, what if I have unknowingly harmed someone or something? And Sylvia, don't let me forget to get back to the cafeteria story a little bit later, because I know that one amuses <laughs> you greatly. Um, right, right here at, at uh, Spirit Rock, I've got a great story to share with you. Um, 
But so for, <laughs> for me, the obsession was always, what if I unknowingly harm someone? And so one of my great challenges in, in going public was um, talking to people like you, because if I were to give a talk early on and I would show up at a bookstore and people might come up and shake my hand afterwards, my great fear would be, what if I'm unknowingly carrying the Ebola virus? <laughs> and therefore, I might give it to you when we shake hands. Now, one of the things that you need to know about this particular mental health disorder is that those of us who battle it are acutely and painfully aware of how ridiculous the thoughts are and how ridiculous our responses to them are, which again uh, feeds so well into the Buddhist world about mind-brain distinctions, mindfulness, awareness, impartial spectators, all of these things. So the treatment process for OCD is a process called exposure response prevention. And that's just a fancy, I call it torture therapy, but the, the technical ther therapy term is exposure response prevention. It's just what it sounds like. Working with a therapist, working systematically up a hierarchy, somebody with challenges like mine learns to uh, face the trigger, the exposure, and then learn not to act on the compulsion. And, and some of these cycles are really classic, you know them. If you have contamination concerns of somebody with OCD, the what if question is, what if I get somebody else sick? What if they get me sick? The logical compulsion, scrub hands, okay? There's a temporary payoff, so it's what we call a negative reinforcement. It just keeps feeding the cycle, vicious, vicious cycle. Uh, likewise with somebody who is a checker, um, you know, the example I used about the garage door, that's human nature, but for somebody with the what-if questions that repeat, what if that pothole I ran over with my car was actually a body? Well, that's one I know very well. That was one of my greatest challenges with driving. And so the compulsion became to turn the car around and check it over and over again. But so the, the, the therapy process is to expose oneself to that fear and then actually curb the compulsion to go back and do it. Now, this is where things get very Buddhist for me, um, in that what we know empirically to be true in the medical world <coughs> is that if we habituate to anxiety, it dissipates. If we sit with the discomfort of uncertainty, it decreases. That is the treatment process. And, and when we're working clinically with a therapist, all we're doing is really learning to retrain our minds that this, in fact, is true. Now, you all know that because you are studying Buddhists, and the Buddha taught this <laughs> thousands of years ago, um, that the only really effective way to deal with uncertainty is to embrace uncertainty. I've started calling that the uncertainty paradox in, in my outreach. It's a term that I think uh, connects with people who don't have the Buddhist background. Um, one of the most influential books uh, beyond Sylvia's that I read was Pema Chodron's Comfortable with Uncertainty, which is all about this whole nature. I mean, I read this and thought, does she have OCD? <laughs> uh, I mean, because, did the Buddha have OCD? Um, because the insights there, I mean, are, are right on. And one of the really cool things for me in my outreach and being op having opportunities to speak with a group like this one day and the next group, you know, the American Psychiatric Association, is that these two uh, disciplines are really starting to merge. And I know you know that um, because you're probably seeing it more and more in scientific articles. But there, are, there is incredible science, Sylvia, to support what you teach. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> no, they're showing that now because now they do those fMRIs and they show yes, people yes. how they feel this way and how they yep. feel that way. So you can see, I can feel better. And, yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
You gonna tell that story about the? I know you're gonna make me, so I guess I'm better. Um, my challenge has always been, again, as I shared with you, harm obsessions. So uh, over the years, my harm obsessions went a variety of different ways. I refer to my OCD, by the way, as my doubt bully. And one of the things that we're taught in OCD therapy is to externalize our OCD. Um, and, and so we, we think of it as an outside entity, and yet we realize that it is not. And if we have problems with that, then we have other mental health challenges. But with, <laughs> with OCD, we realize that um, it, this is a brain function. But it's helpful for us to externalize it so we can talk back to it. Um, and, and also so we can make those separations. I love what you were saying, Sylvia, about um, coming to understand that we are not our habits, mm -hmm. that there's a distinction between, I, I, I cringe when I hear people say, I'm an obsessive compulsive, and I used to do that, but, but now I realize, no, I'm a person struggling with obsessive compulsive disorder, and, and, and that's a really key distinction for me, and it was part of my journey to make that distinction. Um, so one of the things that was really helpful for me, a, a wonderful book on OCD called Brain Lock by Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz out of UCLA, probably the most successful book ever written on OCD. Um, Dr. Schwartz is a Buddhist and um, wrote significantly about uh, mindfulness and the ability to watch our thoughts, to observe our thoughts, to be able to say, uh, he has a process, a four-step process, which is um, to relabel, reattribute, refocus, and revalue. And the relabeling is, is very Buddhist, and he talks about it being very Buddhist, um, which is this notion of observing our thoughts. So when I find myself um, feeling that my hands are really dirty and I'm going to contaminate people around me, instead of saying, gosh, my hands are really dirty, what if I get somebody sick? Uh, Dr. Schwartz taught me to say, I am obsessing or I am feeling or I am I'm entertaining an obsession that my hands aren't clean and I am fighting a compulsion to go scrub my hands. And do you see how that layer of separation is the observation? It's the ability to say, you know, my mind is watching my brain, which is such a fascinating thing in the neurological world these days. Um, scientists are having to grapple with that because uh, it moves into spiritual areas that a lot of them are very uncomfortable with. But there is, and that's why, by the way, OCD has become such a fascinating backdrop for science and spirituality, is we, better than anybody, get that distinction between mind and brain because we are able to watch ourselves um, behave in irrational ways and think in irrational ways. So who is the observer? So bringing all this back, um, my challenge with the harm obsessions has always been what if I unknowingly harm or might harm someone or something through my negligence generally. So it's led to all kinds of issues over the years. Driving was a huge challenge when I would drive down a road. As I said, I'd hit a pothole. Um, my doubt bully would say, well, what if that was a body you ran over and not a pothole? Well, I'm a reasonably intelligent guy. I mean, I know that the car would probably go up and then down, not down and then up. There might be some screaming, maybe some blood on my windshield. I mean, I, I realize intellectually that this didn't happen, but as I often say in my outreach, intellect is the bullied little brother of emotion. Emotion is much more powerful than intellect, and I know you now know that as well. So 
it doesn't matter that I intellectually understand that this didn't happen. So the doubt bully says to me, well, what if, which is always at the core of, of these questions, what if, dot, 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 fill in the blank, usually a very catastrophic question. Uh, question. And, and so my doubt bully would always conveniently suggest a compulsion. And the compulsion in that case would be, well, just drive the car back around and verify that there is a pothole in the road. It will make you feel better. So I would. I'd turn the car around and I'd go back and I'd see that there's a pothole in the road and I would feel better. Drive off, doubt bully right back there on my shoulder saying, okay, so you saw a pothole that doesn't preclude the possibility that there was also a, a body right there, right? So turn the car around, go back, check. Don't see the body, feel better. Again, temporary payoff. Drive on, doubt bully. Tap, tap, tap. Did you check the side of the road? Because maybe the body rolled over there. You know, go back, check it again, then check the bushes. I mean, thank God the CHP never saw me going through the bushes along 101. It's okay, officer, I'm just looking for a body I might have run over. Um, this has led to a rather interesting life for me. Well, now, the good news is, and I'm often asked in my travels, um, are you cured? No, I, I no, no more consider myself cured of OCD than a recovering alcoholic would consider him or herself cured of alcoholism. It's an ongoing challenge, um, and the, the, the victories for me today are, are standing up to the doubt bully and saying, I observe you, I see you, but I don't have to heed what you tell me to do. Uh, again, drawn a lot from the Buddhist world for that. So bringing this all back, um, I was uh, very thrilled to be here uh, for a, a day of a guest retreat with, with Sylvia about a month ago, two months ago, whenever it's been. And um, I, I'm new to all of this, so uh, I made a number of faux pas along the way, like saying hello, 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 as I'm walking up the, uh, the pathway, and people looking at me, like, you don't get this, do you? We're in silence. <laughs> got it, got it. So I'm kind of learning my way around this. Um, but we had the, the cafeteria break, and I went in there, and... Um, Buffets have always been a real challenge for me, and let me tell you that one of the great ironies, I'm, I'm very involved with the International OCD Foundation, and um, my very first conference that I went to, we have an annual conference every year, and the very first conference I went to, I think it was in San Diego, and I show up and I go through the workshops, and they're all very intriguing and whatnot, and then they have a, a dinner for us, and I walk into this ballroom with hundreds of other people with OCD. It's like a, it's like a punchline, right? I mean, an OCD conference, right? I mean, trust me, I've got a million I can share with you. So, but we won't go in there, and lo and behold, there's an open buffet. And I'm thinking, okay, is there a hidden camera here? Because I'm in line, and you know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to kill off the guy behind me with my germs. And the guy behind me is thinking, he's going to kill me off with his germs because he's got the opposite of thing going on. So, I mean, it's just, I, I think that we do this as an ongoing challenge for the people who come to these conferences. So, you, of course, have an open buffet at your cafeteria here. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm feeling good about myself. I've been very mindful in the morning, had a wonderful meditation with Sylvia. And I'm thinking, I'm feeling strong. I can do this. So, I uh, walk in there and and prepared to take food. And, and in the old days, I'd have to have my wife get the food for me from an open buffet, and, or I would just not eat and whatnot. But I'm pushing myself, because that's what we do when we're, we're in recovery. And, and, and so I'm doing fine. I'm feeling great. Until the woman in front of me in line uses the tongs to get a piece of pita out of the, the bowl there. And then the tongs fall onto the ground. I'm thinking, what is she going to do now? 
because I'm guilty by association. I have seen this happen. I did not, I'm not responsible for it. In the old days, my bully would just make me responsible for various things. But I needed to know now what happened to the tongs. And so I think she probably grew up with a five-second rule. <laughs> because she picked up the tongs and she put them back in the basket. Everything, my doubt bully's gone. You need, Jeff, to go report to the kitchen that the tongs were just on the ground. Now, it looked like it was recently sweeped. It looked clean. Everything was fine. One more complication. We're all in silence. So now I'm supposed to go speak. I mean, this is like right out of an episode of Monk or something, right? I mean, so I fought it. I fought it, and I said... Um, is hopefully we'll, we'll share a little bit later on. I, I have a, what I call a greater good decision-making framework. And I said, Jeff, greater good, greater good. The greater good in this moment is for you to let these people around you enjoy the retreat, for you to push yourself, for you to stay in silence, for you to understand that the floor is um, probably clean, but we're not going to start debating that. We're going to accept that for the greater good, I am going to sit with the discomfort of my anxiety around those tongs having been on the ground and now in that person's hands getting their lunch. And, and I did push through that. Um, and some of you are going, really? <laughs> Thanks for telling us. No, but, but it was one of those things that for the greater good I had to do. Um, and ultimately, as I sat with that discomfort, um, and I went back and probably looked a little ashen because I think... Uh, Sylvia said, are you, everything okay? And, like, and I, I shared the story with her, and you found it rather amusing. <laughs> um, so yes, that's a very typical example of, of how I had to learn to sit with my anxiety. The, the final thing I'll say, and, and then um, follow Sylvia's direction for anything that, that you all are interested in chatting about specifically, is this metaphor that I have come to find so helpful. And this came from uh, a clinical book, a, a wonderful book for parents of children with OCD um, by Tamar Chansky, a PhD. And, and, but I, I think it also has wonderful Buddhist overtones, and I, I just use this example all the time now, this metaphor. When we're kids, we jump in a cold swimming pool, and the water is really cold, and our brain sends out the message, cold, 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 get out, get out, get out. But because we're kids, we splash around in the pool, and lo and behold, the water warms up. No, the water didn't warm up. We acclimated to the water. We habituated to it, to use the scientific terms. Uh, we desensitized to it, and it became far more bearable. Well, do you see the metaphor there for what we do with life and anxiety? When we are in anxiety, we want out of anxiety, and therefore we keep climbing out of the pool. Those of us, without your wisdom, um, of having studied Buddhism, which encourages us to embrace the uncertainty, embrace the discomfort, observe it, learn from it, be in it. And that I have found is that that metaphor of learning to stay in the pool and habituate to that anxiety is, is to me, the meeting place of science for dealing with anxiety and this wonderful framework that the Buddhists gave us all those thousands of years ago. So bravo. I'll, I'll pick that up a little bit and then we'll ask people for their... their uh, uh, responses and questions, but one of the things I was thinking about, I don't want to forget all the things I wanted to say. First of all, I, I love that line about uh, we actually have the possibility of the 
mind watching the brain and making the distinction between mind and brain that way. Because sometimes it's a little bit sloshy and we're not always, as, as Dharma teachers, exactly as clear as we should be. But the idea that the brain does its firing, but that the mind, the, 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 the aspect of our consciousness that says, look what you just did, is the mind watching the brain. My, my brain just fired and said, in such a way. It made that thought. Now, what will I do with it? That already gives you mm -hmm. a, a sort of separation in between them. I was thinking also of not only does being able to see the separation, or maybe it's all the same, being able to see the separation is like step one in terms of being able to say, you know what, I'm going to be in charge of this, or the, you know, I'm going to talk back to the bully. The other aspect of, and maybe the being able to see depends on it, is a certain amount of composure in the mind. So that it seems to me that um, to whatever degree people practice a, uh, a practice that keeps their mind fairly relaxed, the, um, the offending thought, mm -hmm. uh, the tongues drop, the this happened, the this happened, what if, that offending thought falls on a less reactive brain mm -hmm. that doesn't fire mm -hmm. quite so fast. Uh, the example that came up into, and when it doesn't fire quite so fast, the uh, the intellect is able, our innate wisdom, or not so, in, I think it's innate, our wisdom is able to take over. The, uh, and the, uh, the example that came into my mind as you were talking is, um, which came about when you said, I sat down, and I said, you know, that I didn't do the tongues, great, you know, that the mind settles down, and you ate your lunch, actually, even. Thank you very much. As, uh, <laughs> if I remember correctly, uh, everybody here knows that of the five hindrances uh, that the Buddha, uh, that, which is just the way that the Buddha categorized, somebody else might do it another way, have six or eight or however, but of those five when we've talked about it, I've uh, always acknowledged that my principal uh, hindrance is um, overly excitable mind ready to worry about things not so much expressing itself as compulsive with compulsive action, but compulsive worrying, repetitive worrying about catastrophic thoughts. And mm -hmm. someone says, not so much I caused them, yours is different. Everybody's got a little different right. story. Right. I am the cause of this. Mine is, uh-oh, in the airport when they say, ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please, on the public address. I think, ah, something happened. And, <laughs> and invariably they say, Please keep your, attend your luggage attended. They say that all the time after that. But nevertheless, when they say it, ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention? Ah! They get uh, too much. It's, it's less now because I know about it so many times. And I can see it happening. And so I head it off. I used to test my level of composure on retreats by giving myself um, an alarm test, uh, like... Uh, I'd be on retreat somewhere for some days, and my mind would feel so relaxed, so spacious, so at ease. And then I'd give myself a, uh, I'd ask myself a question, like a test. Let's see how at ease your mind is if, uh, just think about this. Um, uh, and it, I'd ask myself something that normally would alarm my mind. And it, mine are generally, what if something bad happens to somebody? Not I did it but I wasn't watching sufficiently well, and it happened. What if Emmy went to uh, Mexico with my father and forgot her asthma medicine? That was my trick, that was my exam question. 
What if Emmy went to Mexico and forgot to take her asthma medicine? I see how my mind didn't do anything with it, and which is a miracle because I mean that's a really a big cause for flying into alarm. And it sits quietly. And I think, wow, look at that. I must be really relaxed. <laughs> and and the, in the relax, and this is the point I wanted to make, the wisdom that's there is A, she probably remembered to take the asthma medicine. B, they have pharmacies in Mexico. <laughs> C, uh, I can't follow her around the rest of her life. I'm not in charge. Mm -hmm. D, uh, it, it, I'm, you know, it's out of my control, which are, most things are out of my control. And that's just the way it is. And I think fundamentally it has to do with basic control issues mm -hmm. about can we control. But what I'm saying is I think that two components. One is catching it every time so that the mind is less chronically stimulated by agitation. Mm -hmm. And then when it's not in a chronically stimulated place, to have practices that actually, um, uh, not, I don't say tranquilize the mind, Compose the mind so that mm -hmm. its basic state is not high vigilance, mm -hmm. but like <laughs> what I'd like to think of as a regular person if there's such a thing. <laughs> I used to use that term quite a bit with normal people, and I realized no, I don't think anybody's normal. No, <laughs> those people that people have different levels of composure. Mm -hmm. You know, when uh, this is what I think, actually, and then we're going to ask people. You know, when babies are born, they give them the Apgar test, you know, mm -hmm. to see the, and one of the things they do, I don't know if they still do this very one, is primitive, but when my babies were born, they put them down on an examining table, and they do this on either side of them, because babies are supposed to do, ah, they still do that, Nancy? Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> so if you do that, you're supposed to do like that, startle. And, you know, something not good with you if you don't startle. And I've teased people for, I mean, I teased myself, actually, by saying, I'm, I bet when they did that to me, I really, <laughs> because I startle easily. Some people do and some people don't. But, so I think that the way in which uh, um, a, a, a resolve to uh, work on this would include both... Um, being sure that there are th enough things that we're doing that tend towards composure and ease mm -hmm. in the mind, sleeping enough, going for long bike rides, Absolutely. taking physical care of yourself, having a, a, a body and mind that are in a more composed shape to begin with, and then heading off at the pass. Well, one of the things that's so fascinating, I think, in fact, I think you and I had a talk about this, um, is this whole concept of neuroplasticity. Are you familiar with that term? Where the mind essentially can I repair love that itself. Term. So I, it's a favorite term. I think well, I think we shared that. that yeah. Yeah, so when you say that to a group of people, do you know this new word from neurobiology? It's neuroplasticity. Everybody says, ah, oh. they don't even know what it means, but it sounds so good. Neuroplasticity. <laughs> and you sound very intelligent throwing it around the cocktail party too. Neuroplast. Give me some of that neuroplasticity. <laughs> Basically, it, it's the mind's ability to rewire itself. And, and again, OCD, a fascinating uh, backdrop for that because we're finding more and more that the, those of us who have, and, and, and as Sylvia alluded to earlier, there are functional MRIs and structural MRIs that, the, that show the brain of the OCD uh, or the OCD brain is functionally and structurally different than the non-OCD brain. Um, so there really is a biological component there. Um, that said, when they've tracked people who have done uh, therapy and, and gone through recovery as I have, um, they see that the brain 
can basically not heal itself, that's a little too strong, but can certainly uh, repair itself to some degree. And that's neuroplasticity, which is fascinating. Really, um, it, it, it's so encouraging. Like you really, you're not, you're not stuck with the same mind, but not, neither are you stuck with the same brain. We've, we've always talked in Buddhism about you could change your mind, but you can change your brain yep. as well. Yep. That's really exciting. I'd like you to say one more thing before people ask questions. What's the difference between your first book and your second book? Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, the, the first book, well, the first book didn't have Sylvia in it. That's the biggest difference. Um, the, the first book, Rewind, Replay, Repeat, is, is my story. It's, it's my tell-all memoir about living with this elaborate double life. Whoa. Hello. The radio guy should know how to use a microphone. Um, the, um, it, it's my journey with this, this disorder. Uh, it stretches back to my earliest childhood memories. And so in the first book, I share um, that journey and, and what it was like to live undiagnosed with OCD, what it was like to go through therapy, uh, what it was like to recover and piece my life back together again. Um, in the second book, what I did was um, try to extrapolate the lessons of OCD, what I had learned um, by going through the journey I went through and through the recovery process and traveling the country talking about OCD and collecting stories, what I found was that, again, um, whereas I don't believe everybody has a touch of this disorder, I find that most people can really relate to the core cycle of having some kind of a what-if question that becomes overwhelming. I, I think everybody has a doubt bully, is the way I put it in the book. And I think that doubt bully can start bullying us around if we're not careful. I describe metaphorically in the second book um, what it's like to uh, get stuck in this place I call the shadow of doubt, which is metaphorically the state of mind we get into when our doubt bully is in charge and starts taking over. And now I'm talking about the non-OCD world. And then what I um, offer is something I call greater good navigation, basically. And, and for me, it's this. Um, do we have time for a quick example of, of that greater Please. good? Okay. Um, when I am in this shadow of doubt, and, and now I'm speaking, I, I believe for all of us, when we're in that, that shadow of doubt, the world becomes very black and white, and choices appear to be either very good or very bad, very right or very wrong. That's one of the hallmarks of what I call fear-based doubt. Um, as opposed to the healthy doubt that we, we all use to our advantage. Fear-based doubt tends to turn the world into a very black and white place. And in this shadow of doubt, my decision-making becomes very fear-based, um, and my bully is always right there with a quote-unquote good choice and a bad choice. And the good choice, as the doubt bully defines it, is that choice that reduces my anxiety. That's the only criteria for a quote-unquote good choice. It will temporarily, at least, reduce my anxiety. The bad choice, as presented to me by the bully, is the one that would increase my anxiety. The premise of this new book, When in Doubt, Make Belief, is that believing, as I define it, is a willful process in, in, in the sense that I know, I know willful can be a charged world, a word in the Buddhist world, but what I'm talking about is almost a mindful decision, the ability uh, to use the mind to address the brain and to say, I'm going to willfully believe beyond these false messages that my brain is giving me. And so what I had to learn to do was to shift my decision-making between good and bad, which again is the hallmark of living with extreme anxiety, extreme OCD, to what I called good and greater good decision-makings. 
uh, decision uh, decisions. Um, and to do this, this was my way of trumping the doubt bully. Because what I found, and this was, again, part of my, my Buddhist learning in, in recent years, was that trying to <coughs> pretend that the doubt bully doesn't exist is a trap. I mean, the, again, it's the old white elephant uh, experiment. Try not to think about a white elephant. You know, we're all thinking about white elephants right now, right? So if, if, I, if I try to ignore the bully, pretend he's not there, that is a trap for me. So what I learned to be very helpful is to acknowledge the bully. Say, I hear you, Mr. Bully. I see you. I even acknowledge that the argument you're making to me, that this is a good choice, quote-unquote good choice, is compelling. Because that choice, by the way, is the compulsion. So the bad choice is to avoid the compulsion. What I need to do is to reframe that. So let me bring it back to the silly little example here um, at, at, at Spirit Rock when I was in the cafeteria and I watched the tongs go to the ground. Okay? Um, my doubt bully said, Jeff, you've got two choices in this moment. Good choice is what? As defined to me by the doubt bully. Anybody. What, should I, what does the doubt bully want me to do at that point? Wash the tongs. Tell somebody in the kitchen, uh, do something. Now, if I'm really honest with myself, why do I want to do that? I mean, again, those tongs were on a clean floor surface for a millisecond. Reached out, sheep reached down, picked them up, and put them back in. I didn't really believe in my heart, intellectually, that there was a problem. But do you see how the doubt bully is telling me in that situation that if I tell somebody in the kitchen staff or if I go wash them myself, I will relieve some of that anxiety or that I'm feeling. Do you, do you see how that's the trap, okay? So the doubt bully says that's your good choice, Jeff. The bad choice is to just go eat your lunch because you'll never be able to enjoy it. Um, you're going to go back and chat with Sylvia and you'll be so distracted you won't be even be able to listen to her because all you'll be thinking about is the tongs, yada, yada, yada. This is how the doubt bully works. Good choice, bad choice. What I've learned to do over the years is to reframe the choice between good and bad and good and greater good. I leave the good choice on the table. I say, I hear you, Mr. Doubtbully. I hear you telling me that that's a good choice to make. But what's the greater good? For me, greater good has always been about two components, service to others and sense of purpose. Sense of purpose for me goes back to one of my favorite Marianne Williamson quotes, which is, the purpose of our lives is to give birth to the best which is within us. So. In that sense, purpose isn't something I can do to empower myself. Service is something I can do to empower somebody else. And those two components I call combined greater good motivating. And I found them to be more powerful than anything in my life. I found this to be the case experientially. And when I started writing my second book, When in Doubt, Make Belief, I started researching, well, what's out there in greater good? Unbelievable. I came to find that there is at UC Berkeley, right here in the Bay Area, a greater good science center. Um, an author you may be aware of, Dacker Keltner, a PhD at Berkeley, wrote a book called Born to be Good. And it's all about the power of two things. He calls them altruism and self-fulfillment. Exact same two concepts, service and purpose. So Dacker is one of the, the contributors in the book, along with Sylvia, who provides wonderful Buddhist insights throughout the book. Um, and in essence, they corroborate what I learned experientially. So what's the greater good in this silly little example? Well, there are a couple of things I was able to draw on. One, the guy in the kitchen really doesn't need to hear from me right now that the tongs were on the ground. I don't really need to disrupt the whole retreat with this thing simply so I can make myself feel better. 
I can be of service to the people here by choosing, willfully, choosing to sit with my anxiety on this. Beyond that, um, there's a great chance for me to empower myself by making the most of the time I have here at Spirit Rock. You know, by having this wonderful conversation I wound up having with Sylvia, by being a part of the meditation, by walking the retreat grounds, and not letting the bully bully me around. So I was able to say, okay, here's the good choice. I'm trumping that choice, though, with what I call a greater good choice. And in this book, I make a case that you don't have to have OCD to apply this greater good perspective shift, as I call it. Um, and one of the things that's been very uh, empowering for me is to be able to share this framework far beyond OCD circles where it's found a home. Um, recovery has been an area that um, I'm starting to work in now a little bit. We're recovering alcoholics are learning to apply some greater good decision-making and so forth. So that's what the new book is about, in a nutshell. A long nutshell, big nutshell. I think that's great. Uh, uh, well, so we don't run out of time. I want to leave time for people to ask questions. Is there anything that you want to ask? Sure. Where do we start? Hi, this gentleman right here. Um, I'm struck by the, the, some of the similarities I'm hearing between your description of OCD and PTSD. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if veterans and people like that have been in contact with you about the book and how they might use some of that to deal with their own issues of avoidance. And also the idea of greater good and purpose and service, which is what they came from mostly with the problem. So I'm wondering if there's been much overlap that way. Yeah, and, and just in case anyone didn't hear the question, it, it was about the parallels between PTSD challenges and OCD. One of the things that's becoming really fascinating to me is the comorbidity, which is the clinical term for the, the, the overlap between various mental health challenges. And there we are seeing a lot of PTSD, OCD um, crossover. Um, I think that there are a lot of similarities, uh, a lot of differences as well. But it, in, in terms of and you nailed it right there. It's the avoidance aspect. Avoidance is the ultimate compulsion. Um, and, and for me, I didn't realize that for many, many years. And I thought, well, if I could just avoid situations that were triggering for me, I could address my OCD. So if driving became a big challenge, just give it up. I did. Then walking became a big challenge. I wasn't ready to give that up yet. Had I, I would become Howard Hughes. I mean, if you've seen the movie The Aviator, you know what I'm talking about. Howard Hughes became a recluse stuck in his own uh, bedroom. So avoidance is the ultimate compulsion. And as you alluded to, PTSD can lead to a lot of avoidance in a very unhealthy way. Um, so I, I, I would like to think that the, the greater good framework, for example, could be applicable in that world. I have not had an opportunity to share in those circles, but I, I'd certainly welcome that. Yeah, thank you for asking that. Yes? or, you know, it's, it's, it's the Golden Gate Bridge got assigned this, this, um, this fear of, um, that that's where an accident could happen. So could you comment on that? I realize how much we have, we feed each other's collective fears. That feeding collective fears, yeah. I mean, I like to think of that as the society of doubt bullies. 
I think it exists, and I think that they, they all work together. And that, to me, is a perfect example. Um, again, the question being about uh, a, a kind of a collective fear about the Golden Gate Bridge in the wake of that um, that incident that happened with somebody getting hit on the bridge. Um, for a lot of people, where that can lead, again, is that ultimate compulsion of avoidance. If our doubt bullies are successful at uh, painting a picture of something being very um, dangerous, for example, the bridge, then the doubt bully wins by driving us to the ultimate compulsion of avoiding the bridge, for example. There is absolutely a collective societal basis for fear. There, we, we know that. Um, one of the things that, that I have found, too, uh, to bring this back to, to the, I think, the Buddhist practice uh, in, in living in the moment is I have found that the only place the doubt bully cannot exist is the present moment. And my doubt bully is all about what happened in the past. Did I run somebody over? Did I do this? Did I do that? Um, and what might happen in the future? And so if you're ever wondering, is this the doubt bully whispering this to me as opposed to a higher level of consciousness or an intellect-based um, thought, ask yourself, what's the time frame? If it's about what might happen in the past, what did happen in the future, chances are the doubt bully's fingerprints are all over it. W would you agree with that, Sylvia? I absolutely I agree with that because it, the, the sense of mindfulness, not to be, in the, be, to be really in the present moment means to relax into that moment, say, okay, this is what's happening. Sometimes there are dreadful moments. You could be in, a, in the middle of a, of a, of a snowstorm or a, and driving your car. And all of a sudden, genuinely, it's a it's a <laughs> difficult situation. But you don't start thinking about what if you just drive. You know, you just pay attention and drive. And the scenarios of what if and what if that and what if that they don't even come up because you bring all your concentration into this moment and you just do it. And then afterwards, when I've been in situations like that, and people said, you know, weren't you terrified? You say, no, in those moments, you're not terrified. You just do it. The terrified is when it's not happening and you're imagining it. Listen, I, I have a suggestion because we're coming up on 11 o'clock and my sense is that there are a lot of people who would like to talk to Jeff a little bit and do you have to run someplace? Nope, have you have time before, okay. And did you bring books that people could I buy? I did bring books. Yeah, that's very good, thank you. So uh, collectively on behalf of all of us, I want to thank you very much. Notwithstanding that Buddhist bow, I think we could applaud. You know? I, uh, thank you very, very much. Do stay. Um... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.